This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Dane Idle is with us, the president and CEO of Idle Insights. Welcome, Dane. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure, Jody. Great to be with you. So people are so curious, trying to figure out where and how to navigate real estate in the housing market, particularly on the south coast of British Columbia. Of course, I mean, I've lived here my whole life and my entire life, everybody said, wait, the bubble's about to burst. I've yet to see the bubble burst in my 54 years on this planet. But I mean, never have I seen all of these uh, external elements at play like they are today, hearing about the, you know, the increased interest rates uh, and inflation like we haven't seen in decades. So what are you seeing in real estate in this market? Absolutely. There are a lot of factors that are uh, kind of coming here together at the same time to bring about a market correction at the very least. Um, There have been definitely cycles throughout the last few decades. And going back to 2005, um, there's basically been about three or four market cycles that have occurred, which typically does correct the market between 15 and 20 percent. But that day of reckoning that everybody would anticipate or hope for has never ultimately showed up to see a significant market correction down to the 30, 40 percent. And they're not anticipating that to occur this time. Um, We are expecting a a market uh, correction, potentially leading to the recession number, which is technically at a 20% um, decline from the all-time high. Where we sit right now, we are actually at a very interesting place. So we have fallen off what we believe to be the top of the market, which occurred in April of this year, with an average sale price of $2.3 million in the detached market across Greater Vancouver average sale price. What's interesting about the trends that we do um, delineate or identify is that basically from 1980000 there was a, a, a torrid growth cycle that basically occurred up to $2.290 million. There was only three months of data that basically allowed that $191,000 growth. So as you're starting to correct, this market will experience some, uh, some sustained periods of volatility. So that means that the prices are going to jump around this last month, month over month. We did lose $160,000 or 7%. And right now we're off 9% from the April high or 213000 so when we're talking about these numbers and we're talking about average home prices, you specifically mentioned the detached market. Um, right. Is there one slice of real estate that is a better investment in this volatile moment than another? Are we seeing a, a, a lesson uh, in movement on some and where other stocks are, are really hot? Because when people are perhaps moving out of the higher end and moving into the more moderate Um, or as we saw through the pandemic, people moving out of the city centers and and needing more land, people going, I'm done with not having a patio. I want a yard. You know, what, what are we seeing trend wise in that regard? No, that's a very interesting point. And that absolutely has occurred. So basically we saw the um, typical market leaders turn into the laggers over this period of COVID. And what we saw was the tertiary markets, the secondary markets really see the, that, that pickup of demand. Those were the markets that actually led this uh, overall average higher over the COVID period. Now that we're coming out of that, that's when we're starting to see this reversion. So just for an example, Pitt Meadows uh, was one of the leaders uh, as far as growth percentages. 
and it's actually off, um, well, 40% from its near-term high. Used to be selling for $1,961,000. This last month was an average sale price of $1.172. So we're seeing those high flyers that kind of came out of nowhere to take the market lead return back to their lagger status. So those that bought high might want to be holding on for a prolonged period of time to see their equity returned. Um, however, inversely, during COVID, again, those market leaders, the downtown cores, the you know west side, West Vancouver, they didn't really participate in the growth cycle. So what we're seeing now is they actually have been starting to increase higher here over the last three or four months. We expect that to continue as, as even though the overall market will lag, will you know enter into its decline phase. But um, the, the, the typical leaders will return to that. We're with Dane Idle, the president and CEO of Idle Insights, and talking through uh, real estate market trends uh, and and where we've been, where we are. And now I want to just give us a little bit of where, excuse me, <clears throat> where we're going from here, because people, as you mentioned, people who bought high need to hold. Um, but when when somebody is looking at okay, you know, what's my hold here? And if I've got a five year mortgage and watching interest rates where they are, how nervous do I need to be when people are talking about the R word recession and, <laughs> and how interest rates might then move one way or the other? It is all a very nervous time for the the newly anointed homeowner. No, absolutely. And one of the things that, I mean, it's not going to be a short-term uh, downcline or a decline. We're actually going to be in experience this for a period of time. The interesting thing, everybody does have recency bias. So our last market cycle occurred from 2016, basically until 2021. So that was a prolonged market cycle where we actually corrected upwards of 22% during that phase. The interesting thing where we sit here as of today, as of this last data point that came out, was for the first time since June of 2020, the supply has actually eclipsed the demand in our supply-demand metrics. So this, once the change does occur, there's an obvious and discernible reaction. Of course, the market is going to stop increasing and begin to uh, correct. So we are going to experience this likely for at least a few or a couple of years leading into potentially a three-year cycle, Um, but then eventually we will go higher again. The other oddity, just with, I mean, not oddity, but crucially impactful point is that these mortgage rates have over doubled. So we were roughly around 2% in February, where the average sale price was 2.89 million. With the precursor of a a five-year term with the 20% down, the mortgage payments were roughly $7,700. Now, even with this $213,000 price decrease, where the average mortgage cost has actually increased to $9,800. So roughly wow. a $2,000 price change, even though the average sale price has fallen off $213,000. So it is critical. Um, Big numbers. Critical absolutely. for sure. Dane, thank you so much for uh, sharing your insights. Uh, appreciate you. And and this is a definite time to, to keep our eye on the ball when it comes to to what impacts are on this market. So thanks for doing this. My pleasure, Jody. Thank you. But first, we start with the chronically clogged and congested Massey Tunnel. Now, the John Horgan government in B.C. has promised a new tunnel to replace the old one. $4.15 billion won't be ready until the year 20. 30. Now, remember what the previous Liberal government promised. They wanted to build a new bridge to replace the tunnel. You may have just heard the interview with B.C. Transportation Minister Rob Fleming, who was on just a few minutes ago with uh, Jill Bennett. 
And here's what Fleming said just a few moments ago, going after the Liberals here for their bridge idea and whether it would be tolled, toll bridge. Have a listen to this. When people look at their number one issues today are are the economy and the cost of living. So the other government would have kept tolls on the port man. They would have imposed tolls. On this bridge, and that's another fifteen hundred two grand out of families' pockets. All right, let's get the other side of it now. My guest is Todd Stone, Liberal MLA, Kamloops South Thompson. Pleased to welcome him back to the show. Todd, thank you for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. Okay, before we get into this tolling issue, give me your thoughts on the new tunnel that the government wants to build here. And we saw work begin yesterday on the new uh, Steveston interchange in Richmond, part of that part of the project. So the government says this is full steam ahead, a new tunnel to replace the old chronically clogged Massey tunnel. What do you think of that project? Well, look, uh, let's just do a quick refresher here. The, the project that we had on the table that the NDP killed. Oh boy. Oh boy, we're getting some bad. We got some bad connectivity here with you. I don't know, Todd, if you can step closer to a window or something, get some better yeah, connection. Uh, Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. How about now, Mike? Can you? That's, is this better? That's, that's better. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just a quick refresher. Sure, the the, the project that we had put on the table uh, that the NDP killed back in 2017 that included the ten lane bridge, uh, but it also included uh a, a series of, of upgrades to uh, interchanges and overpasses uh, including the steve and uh, interchange uh if if our project had gone ahead uh the current steveson interchange uh, project which is just beginning now actually would have been completed two and a half years ago um the project that we had put on the table uh provided for three interchange uh, new interchanges five improved overpasses and 500 million dollars of transit expansion including uh, allowing for the future uh, expansion of rapid transit uh, over over that bridge so let's just be clear that this is not uh, it wasn't just a 10-lane bridge it was a, a tremendous array of other uh, improvements to that entire highway 99 corridor uh and uh, you know the NDP killed that project we're, we're sitting what? here five six years later and and they're just getting going with the first interchange uh, and the bridge is eight years uh, eight years off yeah, what do you what do you think is the primary problem with this new tunnel they want to build? So it'd be a new eight lane Massey tunnel to replace the old one, four point one five billion dollars. What is wrong with that? Well, it uh, first off, it's never going to get built. Like, uh, let, uh, let's be clear about that. Uh, th- this this uh, this tunnel will never actually get built. It'll never get through uh, the federal and provincial uh, environmental assessment processes uh, and and First Nations. Uh, I, I think it's uh, most are hard pressed to imagine uh, all of the First Nations impacted in the region actually signing off on it. When you think about the impact, uh, the, the impacts of, of, of this tunnel project on the Fraser River, uh, I don't think this project's ever going to get built. If it does, uh, if it does uh, get get approved, uh, as, as our, our uh, as opposition leader Kevin Falcon has said, uh, we, you know we'll we'll kill the this tunnel and and we'll dust off uh, the ten lane bridge project that we had proposed and uh, and bring that back forward. Okay, you just heard Rob Fleming say on the station here a few minutes ago that the Liberals want to put tolls back on the on this infrastructure. You guys would have kept tolls on the Portman Bridge, this new bri- this new bridge over the Fraser to replace the Massey Tunnel you wanted to build. That would have been a toll bridge. This would be a terrible, brutal burden on on family pocketbooks. What do you say to that? Well, first off, I think what's a terrible burden on families is that uh, you know you got what eighty or ninety thousand commuters every single day that are stuck in a in a tunnel 
uh, uh, there would have been a 10-lane bridge and all of those infrastructure improvements that I just mentioned would would, would be open uh, right about now. Uh, with a, with a toll on it, with a toll on it, though, uh, right? Uh, there, there, there was a toll uh, included as part of that project uh, uh, when we when we brought it forward uh, six years ago. Uh, but let me be clear, uh, you know, it's 2022. Uh, the, the BC Liberal leader, Kevin Falcon, has made it very, very clear on your show and, and elsewhere uh, that uh, w- when we dust off that 10-lane bridge project and bring that back forward and build it, uh, there will be no toll uh, on that bridge. And we won't be imposing tolls uh, on any other uh, uh, bridges uh, or, or infrastructure across uh, uh, the province. Okay. And that's okay. in contrast. And Mike, Mike, that's in contrast yeah. to the fact that the, the NDP have a group of people that are beavering away at TransLink right now, that are that are looking at uh, different ways to impose what's called road pricing on, on yeah. British Columbians, on motorists. And uh, the Premier was asked about this recently, and he acknowledged, he said, look, we're going to keep all solutions on the table in terms of uh, how we, we fund infrastructure. I can tell you this much, not only will we not imp- uh, put tolls on, uh, on any of the bridges, we won't. Uh, we'll we'll, uh, we'll disband that department at Translink as well. Uh, there won't be road pricing uh, in, well, in British Columbia under a BC Liberal government either. Okay, I'm just wondering though, for the listeners here listening to your, you know, you're saying there'll be no tolls if if you guys got back in power. Can people really trust Kevin Falcon on that? Because he was a big fan of tolling when he was back in when government and he told me as much on this show a few months ago so let me play a clip here for you todd get your thoughts now this is kevin falcon i asked him about uh the tolls that he put on past infrastructure the promise to put tolls on new bridges and here's what he had to say to me what did the ndp do yes they took off the tolls was that smart politics it was smart politics was it good for the environment? No. Traffic growth has grown 30%. There's a lot of people now that are going to be spending a lot more time sitting in traffic with their cars idling away. And I would argue that that was not the right thing to do from wow. an environmental point of view. No, that was not the right thing to do, to remove the tolls. That's what he told me. Well, if you play the other other parts of your interview with him, and, and I know he's been on many times, he's, he's been very clear that uh, that there, there would be no imposition of... Uh, of tolls on on this bridge, uh, if if we were to get the opportunity to build it uh, or any other bridges, uh, we've been very very clear about that. Uh, and and you know he also makes the point that uh, frankly uh, there there wouldn't uh, there wouldn't have uh, have been a Portman Bridge uh, had the the NDP been in power at the time because they they opposed the, yeah. the new Portman Bridge every single step of the way. Okay, just like I- they've uh, they deep six this uh, the ten lane bridge uh, that would have provided uh, relief to commuters. Okay south of the Fraser um, that are now going to have to wait another uh, eight years if the NDP get their way. Okay, I'll agree with you that he has said that if he gets back into power, the Liberals are in power, and he builds this bridge instead, goes back to Plan A, it will be a toll-free bridge. There'll be no tolls on that bridge. But, but I did ask him about tolling other infrastructure in British Columbia, and he leaves himself some wriggle room here to put new tolls on. I want you to listen carefully to what he had to say to me, Todd, and then I'll get your thoughts. So this is Kevin Falcon. I'm asking him about tolling, tolling bridges, highways in B.C. And here's what he said to me. Have a listen. If you built new infrastructure, would you consider tolling new bridges? Well, you know, we had, a, we had a tolling policy back then, and as I explained yeah. in the clip that you paid, that you played earlier, that we said as long as there was a free non-tolled alternative available, it would be considered. Uh, but, you know, really, there's very few places where it does make a lot of sense. So I think it's unlikely. Okay, he says it's unlikely, but it would be considered. So, <laughs> you know, what are we supposed to believe here? 
Uh, look, I, I think uh, uh, Kevin was uh, outlining rightfully so what the policy was uh, of the day, uh, and, and there was a tolling policy, and it, and it very clearly did state uh, uh, that tolls could only be uh, implemented where there were uh, free alternatives for uh, for drivers. Uh, but uh, he's been very, very clear and consistent, uh, and and you know I support him in this, and his caucus supports him in this. Uh, there will be no toll uh, put on any new bridge over uh, over. Uh, to, to replace the tunnel and uh, or, or on other infrastructure. Uh, we, we've, we've said that uh, over and over, and we'll continue to say that as we, we head uh, to and through okay. uh, the next provincial election. Todd Stone, thanks for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Mike. Take care. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about all the red tape and bureaucracy a lot of small businesses face in this city when they're just trying to keep their doors open, pay the bills. Sometimes that can be difficult when you're faced with a monolithic bureaucracy at Vancouver City Hall. Let's talk about the case now of the Fountainhead Pub on Davie Street and their efforts to get a permission from the city to expand their seating capacity. My guest is Bert Hick. He's a founding founder of Rising Tide Consultants. He was helping out this small business with their application at City Hall. Hey, Bert, thanks for coming on today. I'm pleased to be here. Okay, Bert, can you tell me about the Fountainhead Pub there? It's been a, it's been around a long time there on Davie Street, right? Yep, Davie. It's been there for over twenty years. And the significant thing about the Fountainhead Pub is that it's a cornerstone of the uh, West End community and particularly the LGBTQT plus 2S community. And prior to the Fountainhead Pub, the community could only go to nightclubs like Odyssey, basement of the Dufferin Hotel, and which always were dark, opened up after 7 o'clock at night. Fountainhead became up with a pub. You, you, You go down there and have lunch today, brunch. Uh, snacks and drinks, dinner, and everything else. And it complements the street because it's open during the daytime and up to about 10 o'clock at night, 11. But after that, anybody in there, if they want to seek later type of entertainment, they go across to Numbers Nightclub, celebrities down the street to uh, Junction, watch the drag queens, and, uh, <laughs> and and also go to Pump Jack. So it's, it's, it's an institution in the West End. Yeah, it's been a very popular pub down there for a long time on Davie Street, and not and not just with uh, the gay community, right? I mean, a lot of people enjoy going to that pub. It's been there for a long oh, time. Yeah. So, so let me burgers. Okay, good. Okay, uh, maybe I'll try the burger one day. That sounds good. So, let me ask you about this uh, this proposal. Now, the owner of the pub had an idea to expand, right? So, tell me what the the application was and what he wanted to do there. Yeah, what happened was uh, where the Fountainhead Pub is located, right beside it, it was uh, a mailbox-type uh, business, but it went out of business. And so he wanted to expand, knock, basically knock a hole in the wall, make a big opening, and uh, expand the size of the seating capacity of the pub into this uh, added area. But by doing so, we ran into conflict with an old antiquated policy of the city that's outdated and... Uh, um, and I think it's, it's ludicrous. It's a distancing policy, which basically says if you're a class three, which is a, a licensed establishment with a capacity up to 300 people, you're not allowed to put one within 100 meters of another establishment of the same same class or size. And right across the street from this is Numbers Nightclub. So we, we this application been with the city bureaucracy and walling around City Hall for a year, uh, plus a couple of months. 
before we finally got to go to council and say this is ludicrous because we had the owner of Numbers Nightclub, uh, John Clarities, who also owns Marquee Wine Cellar, there yeah. to speak in favor of it because, you know, they believe that that, that whole street believes on, on the, uh, operates on the basis on a rising tide, all boats left up because Fountainhead brings people to the street, eyes and ears on the street, good people for food, but then they go into numbers, they go into celebrities, they go into the other establishments and the retail businesses. Yeah, so yeah, I can understand, I guess, to an extent, why you'd have a policy. You don't want, you know, a bar on every, everywhere. Like you have to have some reasonable limit. So in this particular case, it's like within a hundred meters. You don't want another bar within a hundred meters. But like you said, that numbers cabaret business, which is right across the street from from the pub that we're talking about here, the Fountainhead. The owner there, John Clarides, who's been a frequent guest on this show, by the way, and I know him very well. Like he is, he was, he had no problem with it, right? So he no, did. He we got a letter. We, had, we yeah. got a letter of support from John that we submitted to the city staff, and then we had him at council on Tuesday, uh, speaking in favor as well. And um, and John pointed out in his presentation the fact that there's going to be huge population growth in that area with all the residential development occurring in that area. And therefore, we, we need more places like the Fountainhead to serve the public. So he was very much on side. But this policy, the distancing policy, was really brought in back uh, when I believe Sam Sullivan was the mayor, to, um, or Philip Owen, uh, to deal with Granville Street Entertainment District because the city uh, bureaucracy thought they'd try and micromanage Granville Street by making sure that there's a variety of experiences on Granville Street, that they all want to be nightclubs uh, catering to the same clientele and offering. They wanted a small little cozy Irish pub of 65 seats, maybe a larger English pub, a blues bar, a jazz bar and all that. Well, that didn't work out. Uh, it became essentially a race to the bottom. Okay. It sounds like that this idea was pretty straightforward, a simple expansion of an existing business that had been there for 20 years and operating with no problems and very popular in the neighborhood. So, you know, it's just mystifying that this would be stuck in a city bureaucracy for over a year, especially yeah. when it, it had so much support, like the, com- the so-called competing bar across the street had no problem with it. And it sounds like the BC Restaurant Association was, was in favor, right? Yeah. Correct. BC Restaurant yeah. Food Service, Ian Tawson, who's on your show uh, from yeah. time to time, he was had no problem. Jeff Gennard of ABLE, Association of Beverage Licensee, he was in favor. They both spoke on Tuesday. We also had uh, Vince Marino, who owns the Pump Jack and um, Junction uh, on Daisy Street. He was there and he spoke. And so when I got up to speak, my opening line to the mayor was, why are we here? It's merely a capacity <laughs> increase for an existing establishment that's been licensed for 20 years. But the other thing is, Mike, like, why does it have to go all the way up to city council for the city uh, city council to have to sit there and debate this thing? This is something that should have been handled administratively by the uh, the staff. Like, there's yeah. no way a, a city of Toronto deals with capacity increases for restaurants, bars, or pubs. They just don't do it. <laughs> it's all dealt with by staff. Your zoning's in place and everything else. And what? the other thing, the other thing to keep in mind, the ownership of Fountainhead had to pay rent for this vacant space for over a year, which is over hundred thousand dollars in rent they've had to pay to keep oh. that space tied up. And what you know, what were they doing with that space? Was it just sitting there empty? Sitting there empty. Oh uh, man! We, we, Come on. We, we, we thought about putting in a pop-up store or something in there, uh, but then that would have to go through some sort of, a, would, would have to get a business license and all that. So he was paying rent for the space. 
uh, and hoping that the elephant would give birth. But you know, it, there's. <laughs> but I've got to tell you, this, the mayor and this council have been very supportive of the hospitality industry, particularly during COVID. Um, and Pete Fry, a couple of weeks ago, put forward a motion, which is unanimously approved, uh, supporting dual licensing so that a restaurant could convert to a liquor primary later at night so people don't can stay in a restaurant and have a cocktail culture and, uh, and make it more vibrant as opposed to having to, okay, do you want to go out for a late drink? You get off work late, you have to go downtown to one of the bars in the downtown area. So, it, you know, this, and then they've also been very supportive of patios, patron capacity mm. changes and things like that. So they, they've, the council's been good, but to me there's a disconnect between the mayor and members of council with the bureaucracy, you know. Yeah, and you know what? I think this should have been a slam dunk, easy decision by the staff, especially when there's no objection from the local businesses. Like, was there anyone complaining or objecting to this idea? There is only one person who put in a letter of concern um, okay. of the of the 800 and some people. Let's see how many were there. There were 800. The notification went out to um, uh, 800. Where is it here? Well, more it went out to more than eight hundred people. You're saying, yeah, eight, yeah the, uh, and and one per and one person objected. Yeah, yeah. It was, okay. There was eight hundred fifty notifications sent out, and there are thirty one responses of, uh, yeah, and thirty of those were in favor. One was opposition. But the key thing for me, Mike, is this is a policy guideline. It's not a bylaw. This distancing requirement. Yeah. It's a policy guideline, and staff have the have the uh, the duty when they're considering an application as to whether or not they're going to exercise discretion to that policy. Right, right. Yeah, this should you have know, been an easy an easy call, I think, for the staff. Now, the story has a happy ending, right? Because when it finally, over a year later, it finally gets in front of city council, and what council has approved it now, correct? Exactly. They approved okay. it unanimously. You know, and there's an old wise French politician way back a long time ago by the name of uh, LaDrue Roland, who once said, there go the people, I must follow them as I am their leader. Well, to me, city staff should be taking a clear message from what council did here and knowing moving forward that they've got to get the step with what council wants. Okay, congratulations on your win here. It took a long time, but at least it turned out on the right side in your favor. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Take care. All right, welcome back to the show. And here we go now with our panel on inflation and interest rates. Inflation at a 40-year high right now. How is the Bank of Canada dealing with that? Well, by hiking interest rates. Of course, if you have a variable rate mortgage, you don't like seeing those interest rates go up. Better hang on to your wallet here. Those interest rates set to go even higher. But the Bank of Canada is saying, look, we have to do that to deal with inflation. Now, here's the deal, though. Inflation is one thing, but could rising interest rates actually trigger something even worse? 
a major recession in Canada. We've got an awesome panel standing by on this first. Have a listen to this. This is the governor of the Bank of Canada here, Tiff Macklem, talking about inflation and how the bank intends to control it. Have a listen. We do think inflation is going to remain around 5% through uh, the first half of this year. We then think it's going to come down um, fairly quickly in the, through the second half of the year uh, to about 3% by the end of the year. The other element is, uh, as we've signaled, um, we, we expect to be raising interest rates, uh, and that will dampen demand growth uh, and ensure that domestic sources of inflation um, do not build up and inflation comes back to target. Okay, as Tiff Macklem, the governor of the Bank of Canada, speaking many weeks ago, and uh, I think I fair to say the inflation has been a tougher for a beast to tame here as the year has unfolded. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, two great guests for you, Jim Stanford, economist at the Center for Future Work in Vancouver, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Jim, thanks for coming on. My pleasure, Mike. Thank you. Also on the line, Philip Cross. Philip is a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. He's the former chief economic analyst at Statistics Canada. I'm very pleased to welcome Philip back to the show. Philip, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me back, Mike. All right, gentlemen, thank you to both of you. Jim, you wrote a really interesting op-ed on this issue in the Toronto Star this week. Can you give me your take on this? Do you think that these rising interest rates could actually trigger a recession in Canada? Uh, not just in Canada, Mike, uh, but around the world. In fact, uh, in the U.S., our biggest trading partner, obviously, uh, GDP was already shrinking in the first quarter of this year. And if it shrinks again in this quarter, the second quarter that just ended uh, June 30th, then the U.S. will already be in recession. Elsewhere around the world, in Europe, for example, big slowdown in growth. Uh, in Canada today, new jobs numbers out uh, from Statistics Canada for the month of June, 43,000 jobs lost uh, in June. Now, you can't base everything on one month's data, but uh, it's another negative in terms of the outlook. So uh, I think there's a, a, a very good chance that this anti-inflation commitment that we're seeing from our central bank and other central banks around the world uh, could overdo it, and then we end up with a recession, which frankly would be worse. Okay, that's very interesting. Philip Cross, your thoughts? Well, we're talking about a recession as some sort of theoretical possibility in the future. The number one problem facing Canadians right now is inflation, is higher prices. We don't have to go and imagine uh, and think up uh, possible economic challenges. We have the biggest challenge we've faced in years right in front of us. That's where our focus has to be. And fortunately, that's where the Bank of Canada's focus is. So, Philip, do you think that the Bank of Canada is proceeding in the right direction here by increasing interest rates? Oh, very much so. I mean, there, there's no question that inflation is being driven by an imbalance between supply and demand. And the bank quite correctly recently said it doesn't matter whether the problem is a shortfall of supply or an excess of demand, there is an imbalance of supply and demand. And the only way to fix that in the short term is to reduce demand. You can't fix and adjust supply a great deal in the short term. It takes years to, to adjust investment and productivity, all these things that affect the supply side of the economy. What the bank can do is reduce demand quickly by raising interest rates. Okay, Jim Stanford, what do you think of that? Well, the inflation that we're experiencing today is actually more complicated than the kind of textbook example of too much money chasing too few goods. 
uh, we did have this little thing called a pandemic uh, over the last couple of years that had all kinds of repercussions, including on international supply chains. Think of things like semiconductors and vehicles and other uh, products that are important that uh, uh, just were not available. Uh, it also affected energy prices, of course, all the more so with the invasion of Ukraine. That's not a domestic demand problem uh, at all. Uh, there is a demand side to it, for sure. Consumers have adjusted the sorts of things that they spend on. It's not so much a problem that there's too much spending, but it's been a re reallocation of spending. When we couldn't eat in restaurants and we couldn't travel, we started buying building supplies for home renos or home electronics, and the prices of those things uh, shot up. So there's going to be some uh, adjustment pains as we try to get back to normal uh, after the pandemic, even as we seem to be in another wave of it. But uh, it isn't a simple uh, textbook case of supply and demand. There's many factors that the Bank of Canada cannot control, but they're going to clamp down on domestic spending power, and that is their, that's right. their mission. They're sticking to it. And the human side of that is going to be less jobs, less income, and potentially a lot of hardship. Philip Cross, do you think that the potential for a recession, I, I take your point that we're talking about something in the future, but could rising interest rates actually trigger a recession in Canada, which could be even worse than the inflation that we've got right now? I'd agree it could. Uh, I disagree with the second part of the sentence, though. I'm far from convinced that a recession is worse than inflation. Statistics Canada recently conducted a survey of Canadians in which three-quarters of Canadians said higher prices were preventing them, were affecting their ability to, to make day-to-day uh, -day expenses, like food, filling up the car, putting a roof over your head. These are, are basic needs of Canadians. When three-quarters of Canadians are having trouble making these basic needs, to me, that trumps the uh, possible job loss by a relatively small number of Canadians or investment losses by a relatively small number of well-off people. Um, we need to be sensitive to, to what's affecting people, and especially low-income people who are the least able to adjust to higher prices. Jim Stanford, your thoughts? Well, um, there's, a, there's a, a lot of other things that could be done to tackle inflation as well. So I think the idea that you, you're, you know, you've got a devil's choice, you're either going to accept high inflation, which is painful, no doubt about it, I agree with Phil on that, or uh, throwing lots of Canadians out of work and undermining their ability to earn. I mean, the, the hardship from that is going to be very severe. Um, so I think, you know, in a way, we have to get a bit creative and say, we, we've relied over the last couple decades on this one big hammer, the interest rate, to adjust the overall pace of the economy. And in theory, the economy is weak. The Bank of Canada cuts the interest rate, gets it going again. The economy is strong. The Bank of Canada raises the interest rate, tries to get back to a, a level that's not too hot, not too cold. Um, but in reality, um, the interest rate itself isn't always the most effective tool, whether you're trying to cool down or heat up. We saw that because we've had very, very, very low interest rates for, for many years. And some of the side effects of very low interest rates have been unintended and, and very unhelpful. The housing bubble is uh, obviously one, but uh, lots of other ways in which um, long-term availability of cheap credit led people to do things that were not very productive, um, including uh, different types of asset price inflation and, and so on. So 
I think in a way there's a deeper question. We're, you know, we're debating whether we should be increasing interest rates right now or how the trade-off is versus the risk of recession. But there's a deeper issue there about how much we rely on this one hammer do you? Uh, because if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. That's the problem, Mike. And uh, we've shown that the interest rate itself can't always solve the problem either okay. direction. Okay, okay, Jim, if, if you're opposed to hiking those interest rates, what is the other answer here to help people through this record high inflation? Like, are you suggesting that government should, what, start giving people money again? Like, spend more money, help people out? I think there's a couple of uh, channels to go there. One is, can we find ways to address the actual sources of this inflation? So the interest rate lever works on overall demand in the economy, as Phil was explaining. It's going to make it harder and more expensive to borrow. You're going to see downturns in certain industries, and ultimately you're going to see less employment, higher unemployment. That's how it works. Now, those issues, the domestic spending power, were not really the core cause of the current inflation we're facing. So housing prices is one of them. So a better strategy around affordable housing in Canada. Now, I agree with Phil, it can't be done overnight, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't start working on it. Secondly, on energy, uh, we have been very uh, slow in Canada in terms of moving towards uh, renewable energy, where we wouldn't be at the whim of uh, OPEC and the global oil price, which has shot up so much uh, this year. Those are some of the things you could do to reduce the impacts uh, on inflation. You could also protect people against it. Uh, For example, indexing some of the income support benefits. Uh, The federal government does that, but many of the provinces don't. Those are ways that you could help people who are the most vulnerable to inflation get through this period. All right, welcome back. As we continue talking, record high inflation. Is Canada headed for something even worse, a major recession? My guests are Jim Stanford and Philip Cross. Phone lines are open. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on yourself. Daryl and Coquitlam on the open line. Hi, Daryl, go ahead. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I have a question for both your guests. I'm an aging baby boomer who lived through the 70s and early 80s. When we had interest rates of about 18, 18 and a half percent on mortgages, historically high inflation. Uh, I remember COLA, wage and price controls. How did we historically manage our way out of those record high interest rates to where we are today prior to this high inflation period? And once again, I see the BCGEU in their negotiation calling for guess what? COLA increases. I yeah, look forward sure. to both of your guests responding. Okay, thanks for the call. Philip Cross, would you like to take that? Sure. The way we historically dealt with it in the 70s was through various misguided government interventions. Wage and price controls was one. Uh, an attempt to regulate the price of energy in North America was another. Uh, and it just didn't work. It wasn't until Paul Volcker arrived in 1979 and decisively adopted monetarism, hiked interest rates, that he very quickly broke the back of inflation. The problem you raise about COLA clauses and so on, that is exactly why the Bank of Canada is the only game in town right now for inflation. Uh, before the break, Jim agreed that, you know, it's the imbalance of supply and demand that, that creates inflation. And yes, there would have been time over the last 10 years to adopt measures to improve supply. There was an opportunity over the last couple of years to wind down fiscal stimulus a little more quickly, but governments didn't do this. So right now, uh, with every passing month, we're seeing wage pressures increase, uh, 
Wage pressures in the the numbers that came out today increased from 3.9% to 5.2% in just one month. Uh, We're seeing inflationary expectations in North America become more embedded. So every passing month, inflation is risk becoming more entrenched in the economy. That's why we have to move very quickly. And the only thing that that moves quickly in the current environment is interest rates. Jim Stanford, your thoughts? Well, the problem with focusing on wage increases is is it's very obvious that wage increases didn't cause the problem. We've had supply chain disruptions, we've had energy prices, we've had some shifts in consumer demand, but wages were growing very, very slowly. They are picking up a little bit now, but they're still growing way slower than inflation. So we've actually seen a very significant decrease in real wage costs for Canadian workers. That means in real purchasing power terms, they're getting paid less for each hour of work than they were a year ago by about 3%. So you can't blame workers for the problem, and you can't blame workers for trying to protect themselves against the problem. Nobody did blame workers for... Well, we're saying ahead, that if Philip. you ask for if you ask for higher wages, then you're gonna you're gonna make inflation last uh, longer. In fact, they're just trying to protect themselves until the true pr- causes of the current inflation, supply chains and energy and so on, work their way through. And we are seeing, Mike, we're seeing some signs that inflation uh, is in fact uh, potentially peaked. We've seen agricultural prices falling. We're going to see energy prices falling. We see a big downturn in housing prices already. So. Um, In terms of the transitory impact of some of the pandemic disruptions, uh, they are not going to last forever, and there are hopeful signs that it's already coming down. Let me me squeeze in one more call here. James in White Rock, running out of time. James, go quick. Go ahead. Uh, Thanks for taking my call. I just want to know, don't you think that it's absolutely inevitable that we're going to go into a recession just because with the interest rates being hiked up, the the federal government's going to service a trillion and a half dollar debt where they had no 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 like reins whatsoever, we're going to have to pay that back. Taxes are going to go up. Whether or not there's inflation, we're all going to get nailed. Okay, we've only got a minute left, so I'll give our panelists 30 seconds each. Philip, is a recession inevitable? I agree it is, because we've been living in a fantasy land over the last couple of years. We've been spending money because of low interest rates and large checks from government, we've been spending money way more than we've been producing. That imbalance of supply and demand inevitably was going to create inflation, and we will return to the real world. Jim Stanford, 30 seconds. I don't think it's inevitable, but it's looming large, and that's because we've put inflation at the top of the list. We've said inflation is the boogeyman, and we're going to fight it no matter what. If we, said, if we treated it as one problem among several problems, we could have a more balanced right. approach and avoid a recession. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about British Columbia's controversial wolf cull now. It's been going on for many years now, started every year since 2015. The B.C. government hiring contractors to kill hundreds of wolves every year in order to protect threatened caribou herds. Yeah, so normally the wolves are shot from helicopters. Uh, We've seen hundreds of wolves killed. The program uh, aims to kill and cull about between 200 and 300 wolves every single year as part of this effort to save these threatened caribou herds. Of course, the wolves will prey on those caribou. All right, let's discuss it now with my guest, Rebecca Bretter, animal rights lawyer, Bretter Law part of the group that brought a legal challenge against the wolf call program very pleased to welcome her back to the show rebecca thank you very much for coming on today good morning mike thanks for having me 
You bet. Thanks for being here. Can you tell me about the judicial review you were part of here with Pacific Wild Alliance here? You were trying to stop this wolf call. Was that the aim of what you were trying to accomplish here? Well, ultimately, we would have loved to see the government stop the wolf call, but the judicial review wasn't actually asking the government to specifically stop the wolf call because we can't do that. Only a government can do that. But we were asking the court to review the legality of the wolf call. But just before I, I jump into that, I just wanted to say that um, that the government actually is killing more than 200 or 300 wolves a year. There are certain parts of British Columbia where the government is trying to literally extirpate almost uh, entire uh, groups of wolves by up to 80% of the population in certain areas. So we're talking about mass, mass killings here. And since 2015, over 1,700 wolves have been killed at the cost of millions of dollars to to taxpayers of the province. So, And the way that the, the province is doing that here in BC is, like you said, killing wolves by helicopter. It's not via trapping or, or shooting from the ground. It's via helicopter, which is a bit unique compared to other jurisdictions, except for Northwestern Territories, I believe they use uh, they use helicopters too. But like Alberta, not like it's any better, but they use poison to kill to kill wolves. Um, Idaho, Montana, they they shoot and trap them. But just by way of background, um, so to the judicial review to, to get to your question, the judicial yeah. review, what essentially what what we were trying to do is get the uh, court to review the legality of the wolf kill program and what. We were saying uh, since the beginning, at the time of us filing the judicial review, uh, we were saying that uh, the wolf killing from air was unlawful. And basically for two reasons. The first reason we said is that the regulations as, as they were currently drafted at the time didn't provide the discretion needed to government officials to issue these permits to kill wolves by air. So essentially we were saying the regulations didn't allow it. And then the other reason was that we were arguing that the provincial regulations conflicted with federal aviation laws, because you're not allowed using a firearm or having access to firearms on airplanes. And in an interesting twist, um, and and I rarely see this happen, in the course of the litigation, uh, the government probably figured that we were onto something. They amended the regulations and they got the necessary federal permits that they needed uh, in order to allow these contractors to shoot wolves from air. But ultimately, Mm. even though we knew that in the course of litigation, uh, we ultimately still said that the government wasn't wasn't and didn't go far enough with the changes it needed to make. So ultimately, yeah, the court disagreed. The court disagreed. But the important thing here, um, I mean, we're obviously really disappointed with, with the decision, but if there's any silver lining to this, the government was trying pretty hard to stop us from even arguing and bringing this case to court, saying that we didn't have standing, which essentially means we didn't have the right to do this because it's an organization and wolves aren't people and they, can't, they don't have a voice in court. And so the the court disagreed with that, and and the court agreed with us that we did have standing, and we did have the right to to essentially be the voice of wolves in the courtroom, which is important because it does provide some precedent to future groups that want to speak on behalf of animals in court. 
Okay, very interesting background there. And uh, despite that, you you did get some concessions there from government. It, it appears, but at the end of the day, the judge went against you, though, right? So so you lost you lost in court overall. But does that mean the wolf call is going to continue here going forward now? It does mean that. Unfortunately, it, it does mean that the wolf kill. Uh, plan is yeah. going to go ahead. I mean, unless the government uh, changes its its course, which we really hope it does, it really, really is based on flawed science. That wasn't part of the litigation, but uh, but it is based on flawed science. And, and it's not just us saying that, it's actually reputable biologists that came out with a report, interestingly, after we filed the judicial review in 2020, um, saying that wolf call programs like this are not effective and here in BC are it, it has not been effective to date and they don't expect that it will be okay um, can you appeal this we uh, technically I suppose we can but we decided to not appeal it at this time however we are looking at, at other options okay can I can say about that now yeah. Speaking to Rebecca Bretter about the wolf call in British Columbia, her group not successful in, in court, uh, the wolf call will continue. Uh, Rebecca, you mentioned, you said that, um, you believe this wolf call is based on, on flawed science. Let me play a clip here for you on the other side of that. So this is Clayton Lamb, who is a scientist at UBC, also does, uh, research at the University of Montana. He works a lot with these threatened caribou herds in uh, the interior of British Columbia. He loves these caribou. He's trying to save them. He was a guest on my show a few weeks back. We talked about this wolf call. And, you know, his bottom line on it was, you know, nobody likes to see these wolves being shot in this manner. But he does think it is helping to save these threatened caribou. Here's what he had to say to me, and I'll get your thoughts. Clayton Lamb. We're talking about wolf densities that are three, four, five times the density that caribou probably evolved with. And it's yeah. pretty clear that the density of wolves is not working for caribou on the landscape. And we're having basically unsustainable predation rates on these caribou that is making the landscape non-viable. Okay, so he says that the wolf population is just so large, so ravenous going after these threatened caribou that it potentially... It wipes out these threatened caribou herds. So what about the caribou? No, that, and that's so incorrect. And, and the reason why I say that, I mean, it's, these are uh, the science that the government was basing. When I say government, I mean the B.C. government here in B.C. It was basing it on some, what I say, quote-unquote science. Um, but in, like I said, in 2020, there were scientists who got together to take a much closer look at what the, the quote-unquote science the government was relying on. And they listed a whole bunch of reasons, but one of them, so to go to the point about like, the high density of wolves, one of the points yeah. in that report, and this isn't a peer-reviewed journal, that means that other scientists had to review it and concur uh, that that the, the method of doing this type of, uh, of um, analysis is correct. And so when it comes to the actual density of wolves, what this report concluded is that the initial science that the government was looking at 
it, it didn't consider the different types of caribou in different types of areas. So I'll explain that just briefly. So, for example, deep snow mountain caribou, this, this report that came out recently found that wolves only comprised about 5 to 10% of the mortality rate for the deep snow mountain caribou. Compared to, let's say, the central and northern mountain caribou, there was a higher percentage of wolves causing mortality to caribou. But what, essentially what that means is that we cannot assume that w- what works in one area will work in another area. And, and in the bigger picture, and, and maybe even more importantly, importantly, is that what all of this, what the government has been missing from day one is that it is not dealing with the root of the problem, which is human effects on caribou habitat. Since the 1970s, biologists have recognized that clear-cutting, which is still going on right now in critical caribou habitat, is going to have a detrimental effect on caribou. And there were warning signs as early as the early 2000s that logging and other resource extraction like mining and road building and things like that um, is was having at that time an effect on the decline of well, population caribou. Well, let me, well, on that point, uh, let me play another clip here for you from caribou researcher and scientist Clayton Lamb on, on the earlier show because you're going to hear him here effectively agree with you on the habitat issue, like, you know, he's saying that they, we need to protect this threatened habitat in order for these caribou to survive. But he also believes that the wolf cull is an effective kind of stopgap measure in the meantime to, to save these caribou herds that are right on the brink. So here's what he had to say, then I'll get your thoughts. The gold standard here is that we have to recover this landscape to a point that it will sustain caribou, and that comes through habitat restoration and protection. But takes a long time to do that. So the wolf reduction is meant to sort of hold us over in the meantime. Yeah. So he, his point is that, yeah, he agrees with you that habitat restoration is, is crucial. But in the meantime, when you have some of these caribou herds that are just barely clinging on, is very small numbers, that the wolf call is helping them to survive. You don't agree? No, abs- no, two points to that. One, and this is not me, this is based on, on biologists, again, coming from peer-reviewed journals and, and, and research. The first point is that, uh, it's sadly, there are many parts of BC where the, where the destruction of the forest that the caribou relies on will take upwards to 75 years to grow back. And sadly, the, the, the point that the caribou in those areas are at is at basically a point of no return. So killing wolves is not actually going to help caribou in those areas. But the second point is that, and this is what, what these government biologists um, often miss or, or just ignore, is that the disruption of wolf packs, their social dynamics by killing individual wolves, what that leads to, and we've seen this in other parts of the world, is that when you kill individual wolves, they're, they're pack animals. So if you kill individual wolves, it means that other wolves from nearby areas will move in and they'll actually reproduce in higher rates, which means that you'll, you could end up with actually having more wolves by killing individual wolves because it disrupts their social, their social network, so to speak. And so unless there's a long-term commitment by the government to kill all wolves, and, and all predators that, will, that, that prey on caribou, 
it's not going to have a long-term effect. And obviously we're not going to... Yeah. Why why would the government do this then year after year and you know I've interviewed government scientists I've in- interviewed independent researchers and experts on caribou herds who disagree with you on this wolf issue and and like I just repeat again like nobody likes to see these these animals shot from a helicopter it's a kind of a horrifying thought but when you're talking about a caribou herd that is just teetering on the brink of extinction. I don't know. It just seems like it, this this carrot this wolf call is not threatening the viability of the wolf population, right? And there's it, lots of wolves out there. No, that that's not true. Not, we don't really? even we don't even have a fundamental understanding of how many wolves are out there. But what we do know, what science tells us, is by killing individual wolves, you really are screwing things up and you are interfering with their social dynamics, which will have a long-term effect. And and it'll have a negative effect. It'll have a counter effect to what the government is actually trying to do. And and it's really, to answer your question, why is the government then doing this? The question to ask the government back is then why on earth are they continuing to allow cut blocks, clear cut, cut blocks in critical caribou habitat they say that no one likes seeing wolves killed yet on the other right. hand they're still allowing resources extraction they're still allowing uh, snowmobiling and heliskiing in certain parts that are critical to caribou habitat that we now know has an effect on them so okay. they essentially they're still allowing human activity that affects caribou and using wolves as a scapegoat rebecca thank you for coming on today i'm always grateful to you for that okay thank you mike